if you'll open your copy of the scripture to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we're continuing our study in the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the eighth parable that he told in the series of uh, parables that he delivered mostly in private in the interpretation phrase to his phase to his disciples. And we have the privilege this morning to look at them here from the recorded word of God. Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 52, uh, that comprises our text for the explanation of the word of God this Lord's Day morning. Let me read these verses in your hearing. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it upon the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out his treasure, things new and old. I'm using as a subject judgment and proclamation. There is coming a time in human history when God's patience with sinful and rebellious humanity will run out. It has happened before, in case you're wondering about the future. And during the pre-flood days of Noah, God gave mankind 120 years, and Noah preached, and he said it's going to rain, there's coming a flood, and he was a preacher of righteousness. Then God drowned the whole human race, save Noah and his family, comprised of eight people. The time for the future worldwide judgment is fixed in the mind of God. It is written, if you will, on his calendar of coming events. That time period is known only to the Trinity. When that scheduled time comes, no sinner will be able to escape. The parable of the dragnet makes this abundantly clear. It illustrates that coming supernatural direct intervention by Christ into the affairs of humanity. Human history will not then be business as usual any longer. In fact, a whole new world order is on the horizon. It is coming. That judgment, the one illustrated in the parable of the net, is focused on unbelievers. That's the reality here. In that parable, Jesus zeroes his attention on those who have refused him, who will be alive at his coming. In the time before that judgment, the parable of the householder shows what Christ's followers are to be doing as we await that time when he comes again. And we will unfold that responsibility in that parable when we reach it in a few minutes. However, at this point, we begin with the first parable, and I want to call it, use the heading picture, for that's what it really is. It's a picture for us of coming judgment. We have discussed in previous messages how the kingdom of heaven is the realm of salvation. 
those in the kingdom of heaven are the redeemed. They're the ones who have trusted Messiah. They're the ones who have repented of their sins. They've turned away from their rebellion against God, and by faith they've entered into that kingdom, and they are, now they're under the sovereignty of the king himself, and they love and serve him. Other parables provide insight and instruction to us about the nature of the kingdom. You recall, as we studied the parable of the sower, it shows how the word of God uh, the word of the kingdom is instrumental in a person's entrance into the kingdom. The word of God is sown among humanity and those whose hearts have been prepared by the Holy Spirit. They receive the message, the word, the gospel, and they believe and they enter into the kingdom. That was your experience. That was my experience. The parable of the mustard seed, you recall, tells us of the global extent of the kingdom. It began very, very small didn't look like much in Jesus' day, but it would grow, Jesus said, and it would become a global kingdom. The parable of the leavening process, the parable of the leaven, shows us that, uh, the power and influence of the kingdom. It works secretly, undetected by men. Men don't, uh, aren't even aware that the kingdom's at work, but it is in humanity, and people are being brought to saving faith in Christ because of the influence of the gospel of Christ. The parables of the hidden treasure and costly pearls. We saw those two last week, and what they tell us is that the kingdom is of incomparable value. There is nothing that can equal its worth. And anyone who has the kingdom has the most precious possession on the planet. In the parable of the dragnet, we're giving a prophetic preview of what will happen to those who are not in the kingdom. Those who did not enter by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may say, well, what about the parable of the tares? We seen a similar parable Jesus told and indeed you're right uh, that parable the parable of the tares or weeds teaches the same truth about the destiny of the wicked as the dragnet parable does the difference is that when the kingdom takes a different form at the end of the age as our Lord says in our text there will be a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous whereas in the parable of the tares or the weeds they coexist in the present form of the kingdom. Right now, God's people and the devil's people coexist in the world. Let me just take a little parenthetical statement. You wonder why there's evil in the world? It's because the devil's kids are still running around. Do understand that. You have to under comprehend that. You have to see life from a biblical perspective. You have to understand why we have all of these problems, all of these troubles. is because there are people who hate God, hate Christ, hate the Word of God, and they're opposed to Him, and they live out their sinful lives in this world. But they are here, and we're here among them who know the Savior. But in the parable we're studying this morning, uh, that's going to be terminated. That's going to be over. The coexistence will end. Now, what Jesus does here is what Jesus always does. In this parable, he uses the familiar to picture for us the coming judgment of unbelievers. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a dragnet cast into the sea. Jesus' disciples, they understood that. 
the people understood that. They had seen, if you lived along the Sea of Galilee, you knew about fishermen, and you knew how they would take this dragnet, and they would go out into the sea or from the shore. They would use the dragnet attached to the boat that was in the sea, and they would fish. They understood that. And so when you hear that, you know it's not like some of y'all might do, go to Cabela's and get you a hook and line and fancy thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's a dragnet. A dragnet was a large net requiring a team of fishermen. The dragnet sometimes covered as much as half a square mile. It was pulled into a giant circle around the fish between two boats out in the deep water. Or, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, one boat could be out in the water and the net could be moored to the shore there. And then that boat would circle around and catch the fish. Floats were attached to the top of the net and weights to the bottom, forming a wall of net from surface to the bottom of the lake. Get it? You picture in your mind this huge net, uh, almost square mile in many cases, and it goes from the top of the water to the bottom of the water, and it's encircling, and guess what? No fish can escape as the fishermen enclosed the net. Everything was trapped inside. Now you'll notice at verse 47, and gathering fish of every kind. There's no escape. It doesn't say gathering a lot of fish. It's gathering every fish of every kind. At least 24 kinds of fish have been discovered in the Sea of Galilee. The word kind, the Greek word is ginos. Genos is more commonly used for race or tribe or people with ethnic identification. So different kinds of fish, genos, may suggest differing nationalities, differing ethnicities. Without question, God's judgment pictured here is universal. It is multi-ethnic because sin is universal. Sinners are in all ethnicities. There is no such thing as a group of people who are not sinners. All Adam's descendants are sinners. Every single one. The scripture is quite clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned. Sinned in Adam. And we sin on our own on our own. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His holiness, His perf perfect standard of character, all of us have done that. Now in verse 48, it says, and when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. When it is filled, when is it filled? Don't speculate. Verse 49 tells us, so it will be at the end of the age. That's when it will be filled. When Christ comes at the end of the age and the net, as it were, is drawn, all of the unrighteous at that time will be drawn upon the beach of judgment. That's what's pictured here. 
Now, what the fishermen did when, in the practice of this picture, they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. This is where the separation comes. The good fish they placed in containers, you know, they, and then people take them and the fishermen and sell them in the marketplaces. The bad fish were discarded. Again, you might say, well, what's a bad fish? Somebody might have a fish they don't like. And I know you're probably thinking, well, I'd throw that one away because I don't care about that particular fish. That's not what is being said here. In the original language, Sopra is used elsewhere in Matthew 7, 18 and Matthew 12, 33 for rotten fruit. So the bad fish here is a fish that is worthless. It's unsuitable for eating. And it pictures the unrighteous. So what we have here is a picture of judgment. Then we move to verse 49. We have the punishment of judgment. So we'll be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. In verse 15, we'll throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus' words, the consummation of the age. That's what it's being referred to here when it says the end of the age. We are living in the inter-advent period the time between the first and second comings of Christ. Christ's second coming will terminate this age. He will come back to earth, not as a baby in a manger, but as a conquering king warrior. He will come in great power and great glory. His holy angels will accompany him. He will come to judge. Revelation 19 verses 11 and following d demonstrates his coming and great power and glory. Matthew chapter 24 talks about the time when the lights are out and he comes. In Zechariah chapter 14 it speaks about the reality that even death a day and night will be distorted because he comes. And he's going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to come to the Mount of Olives when he comes. And the whole world will see him. In fact, when they, the world will look up and they will see Jesus Christ coming and the whole world, the Bible says, will mourn. Some will mourn over their sin and they will repent and believe. Some will see him come and they will hide, say, rocks fall on me. Like that's going to help. When he comes. It's going to be a cataclysmic event, a catastrophic event for the world's sinners. It's going to be an event unlike any that's ever happened because never before has the Son of God incarnate come to the earth to judge. He's going to do it. So how do you know that? The Bible says so. Well, did the Bible give you any evidence? Says, well, yes, yeah, because the Bible kept talking about him. he was going to come the first time, and guess what he did? That's why you're already thinking about Christmas. Because it says, unto us a son is given. <laughs> Prophesying is coming, and he came. And the world's been changed ever since. He's going to come. 
And when he comes, he is going to effect a separation. In fact, his holy angels, as I said, they will accompany him, and they will gather the elect, and, but they will also gather the unbelievers. And in that separation will take place. Remember the sheep and goat judgment? Matthew chapter 25. Now it says here, verse 49, the bottom of the verse. Take out the wicked from among the righteous. The righteous, let me start with them first, are those who by faith in Christ entered the kingdom of heaven. They entered through the narrow gate walk the narrow way. Their lives are transformed by the grace of Christ. The righteous here is not a reference to the church age saints, but tribulation saints. Those who come to Christ during the seven-year tribulation period you can see that described in Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, all the way to chapter 19. It's a horrible seven-year period of time of judgment. They'll come down from heaven, from the Lamb, pummeling the earth. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. But during that awful time of judgment, a great ingathering of souls will come during those days. Revelation chapter 7 and verses 9 and 14 tell us about this great, massive salvation is going to take place during a time of horrific judgment coming from the Lamb of God in heaven, yet at the same time, God is saving people. It's going to be the greatest revival the world's ever seen. There are going to be people brought into the kingdom. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be in the world and they'll be proclaiming the gospel of Christ. They'll be proclaiming he's coming and people will believe and they will say yes to Christ and they'll come to faith in Christ. And the church will not be there in the seven-year period of tribulation, premillennialism. This is, this is the literal interpretation of Scripture. This is the right eschatological view we're not going to be there. You're not going to be there. We're not safe for wrath. Safe for glory. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, I also will keep you, saying to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus says, from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. He says to the church of Philadelphia, and it refers to all of the churches throughout church history, because it says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Just didn't apply to Philadelphia, but to all of us, even ELBC. Keep you from the hour of testing. Keep you out of it. Ecterel, out of it. Take us out. It's a time of trial for unbelievers, that seven-year period. Those who dwell on the earth, by the way, let me just throw this in. It'll help you with your understanding when you read the Bible. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth are earth dwellers, that's a technical term referring to unbelievers. So when Christ comes at the second coming, we're, we're not here. We were taken in the rapture seven years before. 
So this separation is for those saints who will be living during that time who come to faith in Christ and separating them from or the wicked from them. The wicked from them. This is about them. And what will he do? The angels. And will, verse 50, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. Throwing them into the furnace of fire is a reference to being eternally rejected. I need to share this with you. Some commentators say that a furnace isn't suitable for fish. But that is to confuse symbol with what is being symbolized. The furnace is not for fish, but for the wicked. Now, the furnace of fire, of course, is a reference to hell. The subject of hell is the most emotionally difficult doctrine in all of Scripture to ponder. It's difficult to think about human beings consigned to eternal judgment forever. It's hard. It's emotionally difficult. But Jesus Christ, God incarnate, repeatedly emphasized it in his teaching. You can't escape it. Here is the personification, if you will, of love, Jesus Christ. But he warns men about hell. Don't go there. People say, wow, I, I just the Jesus I know just would never, ever send anybody to hell. Well, the Jesus you know is not the Jesus of the Bible. Number one, he created it. Did you not know that? Because he created everything. He created the lake of fire. He created hell. He knows a thing or two about it. Some people don't like the doctrine of hell, and so they've come up with beliefs about it. <laughs> John Braun, in his book, Whatever Happened to Hell, lists five things that uh, people say to uh, deny the reality of hell for the most part, or if they accept it, they do not talk about it biblically. Braun recounts these. Some of these perhaps you've heard. Number one, the hell on earth people. The hell on earthers. Hell is this life affair, they say. A form of punishment in this life. The afterlife is dismissed. I've heard people in the form of that say, well, um, this life, this is all the hell I'm going to experience. No. Not if you die without Christ. Another group, they're the, it can't be all that bad people. <laughs> uh, I'm not a gambling man, but I wouldn't gamble on that. It is not as good a place as heaven, but it isn't bad enough to make it worth giving up sinful things in this life just to avoid going there. Uh, I'm going to interrupt the list. I'm going to let our Lord answer that. He has a wonderful answer for people who would say such things. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, he says, But I say to everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Fiery hell? I don't like the idea of burning my finger on a match. No sin is worth holding on to under the illusion that uh, it can't be all that bad. Hear our Lord's words. Verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It sounds like it is all that bad. It's bad. It's better to be maimed. Jesus is not saying maim yourself, but he's saying you need to deal radically with sin because it's better for you to do that now than to be cast your whole body into hell. Another group in the list I think is simply a figure of speech. This group reduces hell to nothing more than a poorly organized life. They say if things are gotten together, hell ceases. Sure. Others flat out deny it. They say it just doesn't exist. There are those who entertain the pipe dream of the non-existence of hell. When you die, that's all there is to it. I want to interrupt the list again. <laughs> With Jesus, remember Luke chapter 16? He tells a story about the rich man who went to hell in torment. He lifted up his eyes. He said, oh, just send Lazarus. Dip his finger in the water to put on my tongue. Hmm. The next one, ancient equals wrong. Ancient equals wrong. These people believe because it is an ancient belief, it is wrong. This is how they say it. In the olden days, folks couldn't figure out a way to keep bad people and little children in line. So they conjured up this monstrously grotesque place of gloomy darkness and everlasting torments to do so. You're going to go to hell, Junior. So in fact, they deny what Scripture teaches. They deny what God says about hell. In fact, hell is not to keep people in line. Hell is to punish people who rebel against an infinitely holy God. Sin is horrible. It's an affront to the character of God, and God in His holiness will judge it. Moreover, Hell is a matter of divine revelation. 
Man didn't make up the doctrine. In fact, if it were left up to men, we wouldn't create a doctrine called hell, would we? In fact, men have created other doctrines. They've created purgatory, something less that you can get out of. Hell is a different deal because it comes from God. But I need to hasten to say something here. God does not delight in the idea of people going to hell. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The wicked who die, die in their sins, and they go into hell. God takes no pleasure in that. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the people would not come to him and be saved. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Jesus wanted them to be saved. The Son of God wept because they refused him. He often wanted to gather them as a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, but they said, no, we don't want you. God the Father doesn't delight in hell. Jesus wept over those who would go there. For us then, our attitude shouldn't be one of schadenfreude, schadenfreude. Schadenfreude over people going to hell shouldn't be expressed by any of us. Schadenfreude, that is, rejoicing over the misfortunes of others. Never should be for believers. What does the Bible say about hell? It is eternal. It's eternal. Let me show you something. Matthew 25, 46. End of the sheep and goat judgment. So I want you to see something. I started to just say it and pass on, but I think it's important to see this. Verse 46 of Matthew 25. Did I tell you that? the goats in verse 46 these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous the sheep into eternal life both uh, let me put it this way the word eternal mentioned twice in this verse translates the same Greek word the adjective means Punishment is eternal. Describes eternal. In fact, those who experience punishment, hell, they have no hope. There is an absence of hope. It's a place of punishment. And it will last as long as eternal life does for believers. For as long as believers are experiencing the bliss of heaven in the presence of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all the redeemed of the ages, the condemned, the damned, the unsaved, will experience punishment. It's eternal. It's a place without hope. When I say without hope, that is, there is no escape. It's a place of punishment. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 and 48. Hell fire is not quenched. People in hell will have bodies suitable for hell's eternal punishment. According to Jesus, or John chapter 5, there's a resurrection unto condemnation, and they'll be raised. The unbelievers will with a body suitable to endure eternal punishment. 
like we'll be raised who are believers to, uh, for bodies for heaven and all of that, they will be raised to endure punishment. In fact, Mark 9, 48 says the worm does not die. Physical bodies, when they decay, and worms can eat them, but when the body's gone, the worms have nothing else to eat. But the body that's prepared for those who will be in eternal punishment, that worm, those worms will not die. It'll attack the body, and it'll do so. They will do so forever. Jesus' words. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The word destroy does not mean extinction. It does not mean annihilation. It means ruin. It means loss, the ultimate loss. I think about people in natural catastrophes. They'll lose their home like they did in Maui and Hawaii. They lost everything, many of them, through the fire. And as sad as that is, and we know they're going to get it back, but somebody won't be the same. Maybe they lost some pictures and all that sort of thing, but they'll get another house. It's not an eternal ruin. Here in our own place, when the, you go there, it's like, it's all back. But in hell, it's ruin, is lost, and there is no recovery. And there is no relief from hell's torment. Revelation 14, 10 and, through, and 11, no rest day and night. It's a place of outer darkness. No light can penetrate it. Some people are afraid of the dark. Can you imagine being in a place where you can't see anything? Forever. Now in our text, verse 50, the bottom of it says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, physical and emotional anguish. anguish. It's eternally catastrophic. Say, endure all of that. I told you it's emotionally difficult. But it's the truth. It's a picture of judgment we've seen, punishment of judgment. Purpose is our next one. Verses 51 through 52. While living before judgment falls, this is what we do. Verse 51, Jesus concluded those parables. Now here he comes here. Have you understood all these things? Have you understood all the things that I've just told you? That I've taught you in the parables about the mysteries of the kingdom. Have you understood all these things, guys? And they affirmed it. They said, yes. <laughs> and Jesus said in verse 52, therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Good thing they understood because they needed to understand the realities in order to have an effective ministry. In fact, to have an effective ministry, you must understand divine truth. To be fruitful is imperative. That's why Jesus said, therefore, you're like then, he goes on in his analogy, for every scribe, scribe is literally one who wrote. Today, journalists are, call themselves scribes. 
scribe was a learner, an interpreter, and teacher of the Word of God in our Lord's day in the Scripture. Remember Ezra? Ezra 7.10, he was a ready scribe. He was a learner. He was an interpreter and a teacher and a doer of the Word of God. And so are we. You're a disciple of the kingdom. A disciple of the kingdom is a person committed to the person and teachings of Jesus Christ. It's who a disciple of the kingdom is. Are you personally committed to him? Are you uh, personally committed to his teaching, his truth? And Jesus goes on to further depict them this way. Comparison to a head of a household. Householder. One who is responsible for the welfare of the family. And a major part of his duty, the householder's duty, was to maintain ample supplies of food, clothing, and all other things members of the household might need. And he kept them, brought them out of his treasure, his storehouse as needed. Jesus called them new and old. They knew, the disciples did, old truths of Jesus' previous revelation. And they were given additional truths that were new. Matthew 13, 10, and 11. Bring, bring out, brings out, means to scatter. They were pro to proclaim both the new and old truths. We're to give out God's word wisely and we're to give it out liberally. We're to tell people about heaven. And we also need to tell them about hell. You don't love people if you hide that truth from them. We have to tell people about hell. Jesus did. And it's, I think we can agree, Jesus loved like nobody else ever did, or could. And he warned men, don't go to hell. That's why I despise this prosperity gospel. Telling people it's all about material stuff. Stop that nonsense. I don't care if you become a multi-billionaire. If you die without Christ, it won't mean anything to you the moment you hit hell. People need to hear the truth. They need the gospel. See, the gospel is about keeping you out of hell if you believe it. And this is what we're to do. While we're waiting for Christ to return at the rapture, we're to be about telling people the good news of the gospel. That's why we're still here. You thought you were just here so you can have a good time. No. You thought you are here so you can go do this, do that. No, no, no. You're here to do the work. Are you a committed disciple to him, his person, and his kingdom? That's what you're here for. Ultimately, it's the only thing that matters, the only thing that's eternal. Now, other things you do, those okay in the course of your life. You can even in the course of your life, you remember what you, who you are. If you go to the doctor, bring up Jesus. 
Let me tell you how it happened to me this past week. I went to get my blood drawn. Nothing wrong. Just routine. The doctor said, go. Okay. So the little lady uh, there, she's a young woman, and she sticks me, and I said, my, that's hard. She's not as good as some of them. <laughs> but, but as she was talking, she just lib- glibly said, Jesus. I said, do you know him? There began the conversation. Get your spiritual ears up. Listen to people. You say, yeah, I'm getting my blood drawn. I saw that as just one of those things in my life that God wants me to do so I can communicate his truth to people who need it. That's what matters. We're here to tell people. You know the truth? Tell folks. Tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Nothing better than that. And when you do, you're acting in concord with heaven. Because you're doing what heaven wants you to do. And watch and see what the Lord will do. Judgment's coming. And what we want to do is make sure that anybody goes to hell is connected with us and our church. Let it be they had to stumble over us to get there. Because we told them about it. Let's tell people about the, the judgment to come. And maybe God will use us to rescue many from that judgment. Let's bow to pray to our Lord. Lord, we thank you, we who are saved that you delivered us from what we deserve. You delivered us from justice. Our just deserts would be to go to hell forever. We're sinners. But instead, you've given us grace. We'll be in heaven with you. Lord, help us who are believers to be faithful, to disseminate the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ as disciples of the kingdom. Strengthen us against our fears, our preoccupations with trivial matters. Help us to focus our mind on things that are eternal. Being your representatives in a world that desperately needs to hear the word of the living God. Anyone in this room this morning without Christ facing judgment, pray and save them. Press upon their minds and hearts with the reality of hell, but also the truths about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of sinners. We gather them to himself. Grant that, Lord, for those needy ones. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen.